Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we... Talk about sin. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. An easy an easy topic, fun topic. Well, we are in... <laughs> we're both recovering. We're going to be a little off today, yeah. but we're still talking about sin, and we're going to try not to mess it up. Yeah. So we are in the middle of... This is systematic theology too. Yep, and we have begun uh, begun homardiology, or which is the fancy word for the doctrine of sin. And as we've been talking about, this is a massively important doctrine. Uh, in fact, Jonathan Edwards called it that great important doctrine. Um, and so we began by saying that the better that you can understand this doctrine, and the fuller and richer your understanding, the better you're going to understand essentially every other doctrine of Scripture. And so if, if you're weak on this, chances are you'll be weak in every other area of the Bible. And you'll also be weak in interpreting the many issues of life and this world. Um, then not to mention how to properly and therefore biblically address those things. And so it's a very important issue. In fact, just as an example, we got a question from somebody about Celebrate Recovery. Um, She's participated in it. She's got some questions, a little bit of unease. But my thought when I received the request for information was this really has to do with an issue of sin. The, the better you understand doctrine of sin, the better you're going to understand nature of counseling, recovery, addictions, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we're going to try to answer that in another podcast. But also, that's just an example of what you mean by when you say, there's all these things in life that are coming our way, and we deal with that all the time as pastors. But it, what fascinates me is how often people will not think about it in relationship to sin. Right. So because they cut that out of their vocabulary yeah. or their thought process, it's it's a problem, it's a weakness, it's a flaw, it's many things, but it's not maybe connected somehow to sin. But if it's something that's broken and doesn't work as it's ought to, then it's sin. Yeah. And at, in some way, shape, or form, sin is affecting it, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good example. Um, well, that's because... It's you. It's me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're just... But that's not sin. That arrogance <laughs> is coming through. That's just... Yeah. Well, you're humble. modeling humility right now. In right. <laughs> perfect ways. Oh, my. Um, we don't need any emails. Yeah. So, uh, la last, time, last time we began uh, by surveying the Old Testament terms used for sin, and, and hopefully we are able to show how there are various shades and degrees of sin. Um, while, while all sin is infinitely offensive to God, um, there are degradations within the heart of man. And, and that was made clear by just those terms that are used. So on one side of the sin spectrum, a person might not even know that they're sinning, right? right if they don't have a right. biblical worldview or, or even if they do, it's just, and it's weak. Um, and so their sin is simply revealing that which they are, which is simply a sinner. You know, you'll see this work itself out, you know, even in small ways, like not giving thanks for your food, for instance, or simply presuming that God will give it, 
Whereas right. he tells us, hey, why aren't you, you know, pray for your daily bread? You know, who woke up today? Well, or one of my favorites, James overtly tells us that we are to say Lord willing. Um, right. In light of what we may or may not accomplish in the next day. And he says, if you don't do it, it's boasting and all such boasting is evil. But we don't think about it. Again, sin of ignorance. We, we're not even thinking like we ought to in some of these small ways. Right. So those are, yeah, those are those on that one side of the spectrum. But then as you move along, the terms that we examine to indicate this heightened intentionality within the heart of a person. Right. So the further right you move on that spectrum, the more the language becomes explicit. You know, a person is stubborn, rebellious. Um, they have a God belittling heart. And this is where sin then becomes high handed. There's that heightened form of rejecting God and transgressing his, his ways and his will. So we've not yet built a theology. Um, we're going to begin to do that next time. Rather, we're simply here getting all the, um, this, these ideas from the terms that we're examining from the language that the Bible uses itself. So again, that was all a survey of the Old Testament terms. And today, we're going to now look at how the New Testament speaks of sin. And that's kind of interesting because the Old Testament's not afraid to talk about sin. But the New Testament has an incredible array of terms. I remember the first time I sat through and began to do this in seminary, it was just like, man, this is just relentless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just got the word sin. Yeah. <laughs> and But there's a lot there. And in seminary, we got Old and New Testament lexical all in the first hour. Right. <laughs> it was just one hour of, of just dumping it on you. and But it was sobering. It was very sobering and very op eye-opening, like you said, of um, there's the Lord takes this very seriously, and there's many, many words that are used to describe it. So it's, it's worth our time to do it, and we'll hopefully help make it helpful to them. So you want to start with the first sure. one? Sure. Yeah, so the first word is hamartia, or the verbal form hamartano. Obviously, this is where we get hambardiology from, the, the the doctrine of sin. Um, New Internet or the the dictionary of New Testament theology states this. It says the early usage of the word was to not hit or to miss the mark. It also metaphorically meant to go astray, but it was not until the writing of the Septuagint that it began to take on a distinctively religious and moral meaning. It was the word used to translate the Old Testament term. Kata, which is the first term we talked about right, last time, right. to miss the mark. Um, in Vine's expository dictionary, it says, when you come to the New Testament, the term is used of sin as number one, a principle or source of action or an inward element producing acts. Uh, you get Romans 3.9. Or secondly, a governing principle or power, Romans 6.1. Or three, a generic, sometimes inclusive of concrete wrongdoing, Romans 8 and verse 3. So, fairly broad. Yeah. It's sin. Yeah, it can, and it, it can be moral or not, or amoral, meaning not moral. It's just a right. broad term. Right. You're missing something. So, from there we go to planao. Uh, here, its essential meaning is to lead astray or to deceive. And so, this is accomplished by using words or also by one's actions or non-actions. And so, the active verb will be used in New Testament. It's usually used for false teachers. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. They're 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 deceiving you. Um, and well, Paul deals with this in Second Timothy when he talks about these men who are rising up with these deceitful 
doctrines. I mean, he's not using that term here, but it's the idea there of taking people and leading them astray. They actually think they're doing the right thing, but in fact, they're doing yeah. the wrong. So there may be intentionality, there may not be, but nevertheless, the result is yes. they're being led astray. Which is why you need to be so careful about gathering the type of teachers you do around you, but that's yeah. a separate subject. <laughs> uh, then third, you have parabasis para or the verbal forum parabino. And this, this literally means to go aside or go beyond and refers to transgressing a, a very specific or explicit boundary. Uh, Vine says in Expository Dictionary, the noun is primarily a going aside, but then an overstepping. Uh, used to denote transgression, always a breach of law. Um, you'll see this term used in conjunction with Adam, for instance, in Romans 5.14. It's then used to speak of Eve, 1 Timothy 2.14. In Galatians 3.19, Paul speaks of humanity as transgressing the law, um, but before the law was even made known. Um, and so the, the term for transgress there in the Galatians passage is this term, para basis. Um, Clearly, the idea of the term then is to cross over a designated boundary. In this case, the boundary is, of course, God's law, and all men have therefore stepped outside of that law. All right. So then we have paranomia or? Paranomia. Paranomeo. Okay. Is the verbal form. I believe. Well, I'm not debating. <laughs> I'm just trying to see it in the transliteration. That's my problem, not anyone else's. So Freiburg's lexicon, it's an act of law-breaking which stems from habitual disregard for the law. Uh, it's, it is wrongdoing, evildoing, or deliberate transgression. So you right away, you're already hearing it uh, ramping up. And so yeah. it's not even a transgression. It's a willful transgression. Um, it's not just sin in general. Uh, so you're overtly stepping over the line. <laughs> Every parent knows what this looks like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the previous term, parabasis, um, means to step over, and in some cases, unknowingly. But this term is sometimes used when there's a willful intent into stepping over the line. So mm -hmm. having said that, they're fairly synonymous, though, in their meaning uh, and use. Yeah, and that's why... When it's translated, sometimes now translators bring in the word evil or evil doing. Now there's that overt intent. moral quality. Yeah, yeah, that intent there, the heart. Yeah. Uh, then you have peripatoma, which is the next term. Freiburg's lexicon again on this one states, it is used to speak of a deviation from living according to what has been revealed as the right way to live. It is a false step, sin or transgression used of serious offenses against both God and man. Now, this is the common word for Paul um, that Paul uses. Um, it's used in Matthew only twice and then in Mark only once, um, but it's, it's Paul's, one of his favorite go-tos. Um, the New International Dictionary of the New Testament says it, the word is strongly emphasizing the deliberate act, but also with its fateful consequences. So not only do you have the action itself, but then what that action produces. All right. Now, this is one I was asking you to pronounce on, parakoi. Parakai. So that's on Omega. Omega, Eta, Ae. <laughs> you say it. Parakae. And then uh, parakuo for the verbal form. All right. I believe you. Uh, the words in the New Testament always mean here bad hearing, 
uh, in consequence of unwillingness to hear, and therefore in the guilty sense of disobedience. This comes from Kittle out of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Uh, Erickson, in his Systematic Theology, points out that the sin of para... What? <laughs> Parakae. Not koe. No, it's, it's Omicron Eta. Oh, Okay. Oh, I did say Omega, didn't I? Yeah, you, no, I'm like, you said yep. Omega. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to debate with the man. He was taught by Carson, you know? It's yeah. like, all right, I'm feeling a little <laughs> justified now. Yeah. <laughs> um, any emails, send them to him. Uh, anyhow, is neat, it's either the failure to listen and heed when God is speaking or the disobedience which follows upon failure to hear a right. So in Romans 5.19, Paul will use the term parakae in parallel and contrast it with hupakoe, uh, which is obedience. So the idea then is rightly listening to what is taught or told and then doing it, and it's a conforming one's life to that which has been revealed or refusing to. Right, yeah. Uh, then you have apathis or apatheia, um, and this term means to be disobedient and involves now an inner attitude. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which again is that Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, but the Septuagint uses this to speak of the disobedience of the people of God against God himself. And Vine builds on this then by saying that it is literally the condition of being unpersuadable. Uh, that's a good way to phrase it. There is an obstinacy or obstinate rejection of the will of God. Uh, it's often used in conjunction uh, with, and therefore uh, synonymously with the term used for unbelief. You'll see that for instance, in John 3, 36, uh, there, is, there is a willful mistrusting in what's been revealed. Yeah. And again, very much an issue of the heart yeah. of, of will, of intent. Um, now this, we're, I'm jumping ahead, but this gets into that whole nature of uh, when we talk about people's free choice or whatever, they, they tend to want to focus on this. Well, this would be an expression of your will and that you can you can choose to obey or not obey, but it misses all of the other terms that come into play where you're literally transgressing and you don't even know you're transgressing. Right. Um, but because it doesn't matter. Nature. You're where right. you don't belong. Yeah. And and you don't get the out of saying, well, oops, I, I didn't mean to be over there. doesn't matter. You're there and you don't belong there. So um, another one that's uh, a simple one to understand, anomia. Um, it literally means without or against law. Um, as a result, it is normally translated in lawlessness. So you'll see it in Matthew seven thirty two, Romans four seven as examples. Yeah. Now we're getting into the the legal language. Yeah. Um, and then you have adikia or adikeo. Um, this is this is literally without or against righteousness. Um, when you have that alpha privative, it negates. So like with your term, namia or namas is law. So anamia is right. lawlessness. This is um, dikeo, and you throw that alpha in front of it, it now negates it. So adikeo, it's unrighteousness. Um, and the whole the whole dick word group is, it's involved with legal terminology in the scriptures and in Greek, and it speaks of being outside the law of God and therefore defines if if one is righteous or not. Um, it is it is a legal standing. Um, New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology uh, says this, it says it describes more forcibly than hamartia, 
the outwardly visible characteristics of that which stands under the power of sin. And you'll see this, for instance, in John 7, 18, or chapter 2 and verse 8. All right, and then probably my favorite one pastorally is asabes or asabeo. Um, it's sin. This comes from Erickson in his theology. Sin is also designated uh, irreligion particularly in the uh, New Testament. One prominent word is asabeo, it is, and its various forms. This is the negative of sabo, which means to worship or to reverence, and it's always found in the middle voice in the New Testament. The cluster of terms and asabeo means not so much ungodliness as irreverence. All right, so what? So what? Well, here's the thing. Good translations would be irreverence, impiety, or ungodliness. But understand that ungodliness is essentially ignoring God and removing him from the picture. Now, if, if people can just hold with us on this, it'll help them a lot. It's very helpful when we witness to people. Um, a person might be an externally good person, and we're not going to even debate. You know, we could. There's none good. Theologically, no, right. right. Yeah. But we don't have to. Um, they're externally a good person, yet they don't consider God at, at all in their life. And the Bible then would simply declare a person like that to be ungodly. We always think of ungodly as um, evil. An ungodly man is somebody doing a lot of ungodly things, which is bad stuff. But ungodliness, biblically speaking, just means that you live a life, good or bad or otherwise, without Father God. And that is... Everybody in your right. circle of friends that doesn't know Christ, they literally wake up without a thought of God, and they go to bed without a thought of God, and in between, there isn't. So, when we get into the doctrine of total depravity, you're going to see that we're not saying a person is as evil as they could be, uh, but we are saying that every aspect of their life is one in which they do not live with that awareness of God in mind. And that's just simply ungodliness. And if you can start to let that sink in, it'll radically change how you view yourself and others. And so as we speak to people, this is why it's very helpful to bring the law of God into the conversation because the law then functions to expose what is really there. Right. And that's what like um, the way of the master, what's his name? Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort. That's what he does. Yeah. You know, by the time he's done, you're a liar and an adulterer. <laughs> I mean, being <laughs> blasphemous. Uh, yeah. I, I always like it when he does it with the gangbangers down in LA because those guys know themselves actually quite well. And so they start out with, yeah, I'm okay. But by the time they're done, no, I'm an adulterer and, yeah, I, yeah. and they're owning it. But um, it's, it's a helpful way to do it. Until a person begins to see that, um, they're not ready to be confronted with the remedy, which is Jesus Christ, right. to be put in that right standing in yeah. relationship to God and the law. they don't know they need to be made right. Right, because, right, it, yeah, it's never entered their mind. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's a very good word, very rich and full. Uh, another word is kakos, um, and this is just a good old-fashioned term for evil. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's very broad. It, it's just whatever is evil in character. That's the point. Um, and again, this one has intent behind it, but you'll see it in Matthew 2.41, and then another example would be Luke 16.25. Yeah, this is the one you use when you don't have another word, <laughs> but you know it's wrong. It's this. Right. Right? It just, it's just wrong. It's evil. It's um, unclean and vile. Panarea, uh, panaros, uh, 
in in the New Testament, it's used ethically in the uh, sense of being opposed to God. Uh, Jesus used it as an adjective of men in general who uh, who he would call evil, and so it's it's basically anything opposed to God. So Matthew twelve thirty four, First Corinthians five thirteen, are some uh, simple ways that you can see that. Yeah. So in these are some terms. Uh, in no way are these all of the terms or even all the phrases or word pictures and concepts that the New Testament will use to speak of sin. Uh, But the observation here to make again is that the New Testament takes into account the already extensive homardiology of the Old Testament and then develops it even further. Um, If there's one passage that captures the essence of the New Testament teaching on sin, it would probably be Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. Um, not only there are you directly quoting from the Old Testament, but um, speaks of, uh, in the context there, um, of something much broader than just the Jewish world, um, which is that world that possessed the explicit law of God. Um, rather, it shows how sin works itself out in people from the subtlest of ways, you know, simply ignoring God as God, not giving him thanks, for instance, all the way to the greatest of evil. Um, and there, Paul is quoting that Old Testament passage. Um and then, it, so it's it's a devastating one um, that we'll consider next time in our further episodes on this. So these are the New Testament terms. Um, again, maybe not thrilling to you, but necessarily to lay down in order to build a solid theology. Uh, next time we're going to now begin to develop the doctrine and see how it works itself out within humanity in the world. So until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know what you think about sin. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.